Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, hoping he has his lucky coin with him, is my favorite hombre, Aaron. Hello, friendo. Yeah, that's, that's good. I was hoping you'd say something in Spanish, but ing Spanglish would work just fine. I Hola, guess. friendo. There, there we go. That's good, too. <laughs> this week, we're going to spend some time with Joel and Ethan Cohen's neo-western, No Country for Old Men, courtesy of the week three winner of this year's Director Battle Month. <laughs> Before we get started, let's check out how we did on our predictions for this quadrant of the competition. To remind our listeners, we made picks for how we thought the voting would go. We get one point for a right answer, keeping it pretty simple, and whoever has the most points at the end of the month will buy the loser a pop figure. Aaron is currently leading 21 to 20 after two rounds. So, round three, Aaron, how do you feel you did versus how did you actually do? Well, I know how I did, so I felt I did pretty well, actually. Then feelings are good. <laughs> and I know I did pretty well. Um, okay. I, you know, I thought that I would nail this bracket and the results were, for the most part, what I expected them to be. I ended up coming out of this one correct with the final four picks, the final four movies, and that made me pretty happy. So, well, no, no, I lied. The, the final two and the and the winner. So that's always kind of a good thing when you have those. If you have the final two and the winner right and you just miss some of the middle mashup matchups, it's not really that big of a deal. So I'll go over the winners and how the bracket played out, and then we'll see what we both came up with. Let's we, make sure that you read the actual bracket and not your bracket this week. I am. I actually pulled it up. So I have the bracket that I've been tracking on our Google Sheet where I actually fill it in. And I'm actually yeah. going to read that one instead of my copy so that for the first time <laughs> in three weeks, for our listeners who've been following along, I'm going to get this right right away. So Good deal. We had No Country for Old Men take out Fargo and The Big Lebowski take out Inside Lewin Davis, sad face, in the Coen Brothers bracket. In the Danny Boyle bracket, we had Slumdog Millionaire over 28 Days Later and Steve Jobs over 127 Hours. In the Peter Weir bracket, we had The Truman Show beat Master and Commander. We learned that our Facebook group has a lot of people who need to see Master and Commander. That's basically the takeaway. Dead Poet Society beat Witness. And then the Francis Ford Coppola bracket, we had The Godfather beating The Conversation. No surprise there. And Apocalypse Now, which I believe was playing its IMAX director's cut today in theaters, uh, beat The Outsiders. In the next round, we had No Country for Old Men beating out The Big Lebowski. We had Slumdog Millionaire winning over Steve Jobs. We had The Truman Show beating Dead Poe Society. This was a shocker for me. I don't know where all this love from The Truman Show came from, and I, I was asking you offline. Actually, I haven't seen it in a couple decades. What am I missing? Is there something that is more relevant about that movie today because of the way reality TV has actually evolved that makes people relate to it or something? I don't know. I, I need to watch The Truman Show, apparently, because a lot of people really love it. Then um, we had Godfather beating Apocalypse Now. Our finale came down to No Country for Old Men versus The Godfather, which was not really a surprise to me at all, and No Country for Old Men won 
over The Godfather, and here we are talking about it tonight. So where did you land? How many picks did you actually get correct? Ten out of, I believe it's 15 total. Well, that's good, because I only got nine. So you have increased your lead by two, by two, which feels probably like a whole touchdown or something. At this point, it does. I mean, because the uh, the last bracket, I think I felt about like my confidence level in the last quadrant be about as good as the uh, second quadrant. So (laughs) it's a crapshoot at this point. You either have to really I mean, it could go either way at this point, listeners. I mean, it's a it's a close race and I'm glad it is because I think last year about this time I was already picking out your pop because I was just tanking bad. Oh, yeah. I think you were way, way off by now. Uh, so for you to even have a shot is, you know, you're like a mid-major and I'm the powerhouse and you're trying to upset me. And I'm, so, about, I'm about to go Butler on you. <laughs> so, Butler yeah. lost, though, both yeah, exactly. championship <laughs> games. They, they got close. They made it all the way to the end and they couldn't close the deal. That's what you're looking at. So we okay. shall see. Tune in next week for... Aaron versus Patrick, round four, and we will go over that one. I We can tell you that the winning film was David Fincher's Seven, so that will be next week's primary review and our final Director Battle Month episode. That's good stuff, man. Really fun stuff. Well, from here on out, we're going to be in spoiler territory. This is no country for new People who haven't seen the movie, I guess. I don't know. I tried to make a funny joke, and that didn't work. Um, so if you haven't seen No Country, please go see it um, for your own benefit as well as for this great discussion. Just know that from from this point on, we're going to be spoiling as much as we can about it because there's a lot to talk about. Anytime you talk about a Coen Brothers movie, you're going to be talking about some interesting things. Uh, that being said, we'll get right into our one-word takeaways. Aaron, do you want to start us off? I would be happy to. My one word takeaway, Patrick, was choices. From the opening narration by Sheriff Ed Tom Bell, we are just thrust into this story that, for me, is really all about choices. You know, Bell makes the choice to follow in his family's footsteps and work in law enforcement. And that's what we learn about him right away. And then we quickly meet Llewellyn Moss, and we see him making that fateful choice to walk away with the two million dollars that he finds in the aftermath of this shootout and even Shiger's first murder is the result of a choice i feel like you know the deputy's decision to arrest him and then subsequently turn his back and talk on the phone in a room in which Shiger is given the freedom to roam there's a choice that is made there and a consequence and so this theme i feel like drives a narrative and really ultimately leads us to considering a ton of questions, honestly, about how much control we really have over our own fate and what characters might have done differently to avoid the ones they encounter in this movie. It's a great it's a great word. And when I think about choices, I also think about the fact that as an audience, we are subconsciously making a choice as we're following the narrative. And the word that came to mind for me as I was watching this. I remember the first time I watched this, this word stood out clearly. I wasn't thinking about one more takeaways at the time, but as I think through it, the word thwarted is the, is the one that comes to mind for me because that's how I felt. I felt thwarted. I was like, what just happened here? Wait a minute. By the time we get to the third act of the movie and we start getting these big revelations, things that 
we expect to happen actually not happening and things that just kind of go on without any explanation. And then we see an ending happen the way that the ending of this movie does. I felt a little thwarted. Maybe cheated would be another word, but my expectations were completely thrown out the window by the time I finished this. When I, I remember distinctly seeing the, hearing the, hearing the speech that, that Bell gives at the breakfast table and then the screen goes black and the credits. And I said, WTH, what just happened? That's no, what my I, daughter said when she was watching this for the first <laughs> time a couple nights. She goes, she, she gave me the, what? And their hands up in the air and she's like looking at me and shaking her head around sideways like, what, what just happened? And I was like, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. So when you watch a movie like this, you really do have this sense of being, being thwarted by your own expectations. And those expectations are challenged because of what I think most of us as audience members, as, as moviegoers, as people who love stories are used to seeing. But when we get challenged in a way that not only doesn't explain, but puts us in a position where we have to interpret, I think it opens up our minds to say, okay, there has to be meaning behind that. At least I hope there is. Otherwise, I just wasted two hours of my life enjoying a movie almost. <laughs> and as we get into the discussion, I think we'll both kind of get to a place where we'll kind of flesh that out a little bit because I, I definitely had a, a change of mind as I, as I've experienced this movie, I've, I've watched it a couple of times now and my brain and my heart and my mind have kind of gone on this journey like bell and Moss and sugar have in their own ways. But yeah, I think both your word and mine really kind of encapsulate a lot of what the movie is challenging its audience with the idea of choices and what kind of impact they have and how they affect our normal expectations in terms of life, in terms of story, and in terms of how things should or shouldn't play out. I want to start with your your word because I think it's a fantastic lead into to this first question with regards to uh, Llewellyn's choices. I keep wanting to call him Lewin because it's Lewin Davis. I keep right. I know. I'm and, like, and Davis and Moss. They're very similar names. Yeah, yeah. So I might start referring to him as Moss just to keep myself sane. But uh, anyway, we we look at his life and it seems like in some ways it's defined like a choose your own adventure book where at the very beginning, when we get introduced to him, he makes the choice to walk down after he's shot the buck and see if he can, I guess either follow and he finds the blood and he sees that it's connected to a dog that's walking away. And so that choice of following the dog's blood trail leads to the, remnants of a shootout which leads to another choice to do this and that and so there are all these paths that he could have taken and it it raises the question what if what if he hadn't done this or what if he had done that so which of Llewellyn's choices would you consider his fatal one because obviously he ends up dead spoiler as we said but do you think there was one choice or a, a series of choices that may have led to that moment for him? 
Well, I think that it's, I mean, he's, he's in trouble from the very beginning when he decides to descend upon and investigate the shootout scene. I think that is probably the choice that the most leads him into having to make that critical decision. Of course, picking up the money and walking away with it would be the easy fatal choice to say. But I think that what we are experiencing is we're meeting a man who, in my opinion, from the way he acts throughout the film, presents as a person who, at some point, any time in his life, if these circumstances were to align, he would make the same choice, if that makes sense to you. So I feel like he was always going to make a choice that would lead him down this road, kind of like fate, because of the way he reacts to this. So I would say he was kind of predestined <laughs> for this, it feels like to me. But, I mean, definitely walking into the scene trying to find survivors after he's pretty clearly recognized what has gone down, I think is his fatal choice. And maybe we can even boil it down even past that maybe a little bit to the decision not to alert any authorities. So by walking away with the money and choosing to try and keep the money for himself, that's his fatal choice. That's what ultimately gets him killed. That's why Shigur, the assassin, does come after him. And it's interesting because when we talk about wrong or right, the fun thing about choose-your-own-adventure stories is that there's usually not a distinct wrong or right. There's a lot of morally gray. That's what makes them fun. Or a lot of questions. And, you know, like, this could go right. It sounds like it would be the fun thing to do. And it ends up going terribly badly. Is there is there anything illegal about taking $2 million that just happens to be laying around? I mean, I in a way, I would say no. I guess there's really not. There's nothing necessarily illegal about that. So in one sense, he's morally sort of in that gray area of almost being okay. It's not necessarily a right or wrong decision, but of course, because of what that money is tied to and him knowing that, he's accepting the potential consequences that are to come. And I think with him being a Vietnam veteran, him being an incredibly smart person, I mean, we see him really really take a lot of precautions, right, with this money and with the way that he comes back to the scene to try and check things out, cover things up, secure everything. Like he He's doing things methodically. I feel like he is knowing full well what the potential consequences could be and accepting them right away. And so, um, yeah, I think ultimately, if his life was a choose-your-own-adventure book, he is always going to eventually end up on a page of death. It's just a matter of what the path is that takes him there, I think. Is that, is that good? Yeah. Is that, does that answer your question? I, I think it does. I, I don't know that I completely agree with that because I think that there, to me there is a distinct moment that defines his choice. And that's when he goes back to give the guy water. Because up to that point, he had left no evidence that he was there besides footprints. There were... By going back, he realized that somebody had already shown up 
and somebody was slashing his tires. So he, so his truck is now evidence. And with the VIN number that eventually, uh, sugar is taking off. And so the question then becomes, had he not done that, would he end up dead? I, I think in a way, yes, there's a, th- there's a sense of destiny that exists with him. But I think what, what's happening here in the narrative is that you have a guy who is morally gray at best. I mean, fundamentally, he is stealing money that's not his. And you could justify it by saying, well, he didn't steal the drugs, but he's making a one-to-one comparison and saying, I would imagine that there's probably some money associated with this. Now, he didn't go after that money. He deduced that there was a shooter that was still left. Who was the leftover? I forget what the name, how he described the... Last man standing. The last man standing. And so he, at that point, he goes after and looks for and finds, which I think is a just a beautiful moment where he sits there watching this guy leaning up against a tree, holds his watch up to see if he ever moves. It's phenomenal. And it speaks to what you were talking about, about being that veteran and having that that strategy of being able to be very uh, strategic with the way he's going about doing it. But he doesn't hesitate when it comes to taking the money. And as an audience, we really don't want him to because that's what's interesting. We're like, oh, great. Now it's going to be a chase. He's going to be on the run with this money. And you've got Javier Bardem's character, Sugar, who we've kind of met being crazy is going to probably go after him. And so that sets this kind of roller coaster of what we see as familiarity as an audience going, but we don't know that it's about to, over time, it's going to go off the rails a little bit. What I'm getting at is I think, yes, his end would always be death because he lives in a kind of a fatal kind of living. I I don't think he lives dangerously. I mean, he lives in a trailer with his wife and but the fact that he didn't hesitate to take the money, the fact that he didn't hesitate to go down there and explore, the fact that he didn't hesitate, he was even compelled to go get fill up a water jug and go give it to the guy. That may have seemed moral, but it could be interpreted, Aaron, as his way of saying, yep, this is part of my death journey. Like I'm walking into this expecting to probably die. In fact, when he when he leaves to go do that, or maybe it's when he leaves to to escape, he tells his wife, you know, tell my mom I love her. And she goes, your mom's dead. And he said, OK, I'll tell her myself. And it's played kind of for a laugh. But it's almost like it leads into understanding he knew that his life was going to have an early ending. That's that's kind of my point. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a fantastic scene. It's one of – dude – I really honed in on the script this time around. I mean, I believe it won an Oscar for that. I think it won four total. And just, it makes me want to read the book. I love Cormac McCarthy's writings in general. Anyway, I've read Blood Simple, or is it Blood Meridian? Whatever the Meridian one is I've read. Um, And then The Road, I absolutely adore. But it's this, the way the language and the characters talk and they kind of, you know, show their personalities what the scene you're talking about it's brilliant he's laying there in bed awake at night he can't sleep and he just goes all right and then he stands up and she's like what are you going to do and he goes i'm fixing to go do something dumber than hell but i'm gonna go do it anyways and that's 
that's exactly what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like he knows full well what he's about to do, and he is compelled. I love that word that you use. He's compelled. He's going to do it anyway. Driven by fate, right? As Sugar would kind of, I guess, say. Well, that's the that's the thing is then we look at, at Sugar as also compelled by something. And I remember as I was prepping for the episode, just reading some articles that would give me a little bit more insight into him, we see him initially as the bad guy. Like the first time we see him, he's being arrested. The next moment, he is dumb, dumb, dumb. Why do you have this guy like not chained to something other than himself getting up and just calmly strangling this deputy, washing his hands, and then leaving? And then calmly getting in a squad car, pulling this guy over, and taking an air gun that's used for cattle to his head. And I mean, all these things that feel just very like, Oh, okay. You remember the well, first time you saw that? I just how completely I had to, unique. I had to stop. I had to just stop and go. Did I? Did what? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like iconic. It's one of those things like you've never in your life in a movie, no matter how many you've seen, witnessed that version of a murder. Yeah. And so what we're getting is setup, maybe a false setup, but setup. We're like, this is a bad dude. We need to root against him because juxtaposed against him is Llewellyn Moss, who is shooting a deer and then exploring and stealing money. And somehow we think that's okay. We think, oh, well, we're going to root for this guy because he's got a family. Comparatively. Yeah. Yeah. Comparatively. Comparative ethics. (laughs) And that's, I think, what the narrative is trying to challenge us with. Because you could see Sugar's character through the lens of a Grim Reaper. As if he had a purpose. His purpose was to cause death. And that may have been driven by getting money. But when you watch him, he doesn't take any pleasure in what he does. There's no there's no remorse in what he does. But the things that he does as a means to an end, the murders that happen as a means to an end to get him from point A to point B to point C, all of them seem to be driven by the fact that he is under a compulsion of some kind. He's under a set of laws for himself that we are hint that we are shown a couple of times with the coin. And I feel like he has taken emotion out of the equation. His character has no emotion. And that character leads a life that says, I am supposed to do this and I'm going to do it at whatever cost it is. For the most part. He he also, though, clearly shows his sociopathic nature. There's a great moment where a great I say great that I don't define that how you will is a great scene as far as cinematically speaking, where he's just driving down this bridge in the middle of the night and he sees a bird perched on the side of the bridge and he just slows down, grabs his gun, aims out the window and tries to kill the bird like that is sociopathic crazy behavior. And there, and there is to me, like, you're right. He doesn't show a lot of joy in, ki- or any really joy in killing anyone. It feels intent, like it's, you know, driven by that fate. Like, this is just consequence of what's supposed to happen. And you got in my path. He says that to several people. Um, sorry, you got my, my way. But that bird scene, man, that bird did nothing. Like, there is a, a bit of a craziness to him still. Oh, I completely agree. And I think that, 
we have to be realistic about this. I'm I'm kind of taking the I'm taking the narrative to a metaphoric level and saying that he's not the Grim Reaper. I'm not I'm not making a he is this. I'm being more analogous than anything else and saying that the Grim Reaper as a character has a goal, has a role, and that that role happens to bring people to their death in some way, shape, or form. In this movie, his whole purpose is to find the money. But by the time we get to the end of the movie, we've kind of, in a sense, forgotten about the money because it's now, it's at this point, kind of a red herring. <laughs> and the last thing we see of him is that he's walking away from, from a car accident. But we're not really concerned about the fact that he's going to be looking for money. I think we assume that he is. But it's all, But the bigger thing is that even an instance like that, that he's close to death is not keeping him from fulfilling this mission that he has. And if it's driven by sociopathic means, then so be it. But the fact is he has a mission. He has an idea. And for him, nothing is going to stop that. And it's very interesting because we don't root for him by any means, but there is a little bit of sympathy that I have for him because of the fact that he feels this compulsion he could have stopped at any given point. Like that car accident by itself could have been his way of saying, you know what? Okay, I'm going to just die here. Or I'm just going to accept the fact that this isn't going to happen. No, he has a bone sticking out of his arm and he takes a shirt, wraps it up, and he walks away. And I don't know that whatever the motive is behind that, I think it fully actualizes the fact that he will not give up until his mission is complete, until his purpose is fulfilled. And it makes his character really interesting in the same way that I think Llewellyn Moss is, is that the path that he goes on, the choices that he makes are always going to lead to death. As you say, I think that the path that sugar is on has that same thing, not necessarily leading to death, but it's never going to be able, he's never going to be able to deviate from that. And I think that the missing money is going to be his his unicorn. Like it's he's never going to be able to find it, but he's never going to stop looking for it either. Well, I don't think we ever really actually find out exactly what he's working for either. Or who? I mean, it's believed he's working for the company, right? Yeah. Which, but at the end, he comes in and murders the guy in charge uh, and sitting at his desk in the building. So. I don't think we even necessarily know who he's trying to serve. So you're right. I think it's more about the his job as an assassin. His job is to recover this money. It's more about him having the opportunity, being gifted a reason, so to speak, to play out this life that he has of, of kind of bringing justice in his eyes in some sense. Um I did want to mention, though, before we move off of him at all, his – so a couple things. One, the way he kills people, man, is insane. I mean, just not only the air thing, but the murder with the strangulation and then the scene where he just completely casually lights a car gas engine on fire in the middle of a street and just hobbles into the pharmacy as it explodes in the background – the look on his face of complete just non-interest. Like he's not even paying attention to what he just did. 
it's fascinating to watch him. And I did a little research to find out about that. And as I learned that Javier Bardem actually did not think he would be right for this. And he told the Coens, they called him and he was like, listen, I don't drive. I barely speak English and I absolutely hate violence. And they said, maybe that's why we called you. And what I found really intriguing about this is that violence, because one of the things that sticks out right away with that murder at the police station is how they are violent and painful, and they linger on the violence and the pain, not in a way that I felt was like gratuitous, like some movies, like like a B movie that you know lingers on violence, you're intentionally getting blood splatter and stuff. To me, this was all about not just showing quick and painless murders off screen, but kind of giving them weight, showing the real actual heaviness of what is taking place, kind of treating life with value. And I read that um, when they did an interview about this, they didn't want to glorify the violence. And they said in terms of lighting and filming, they wanted it to actually be very matter-of-fact, according to Roger Deakins. He said, we didn't want to sensationalize the violence, but we also didn't want to play it down. It is just there, and you have to accept it. Without the violence in the film and setting up the world, you wouldn't have the strength of the latter part of the film. It was brutal, and we wanted to show it for what it was. And for me, I think that aspect of Chigurh is what like makes him one of the best villains I've ever seen, because... He doesn't talk a lot, but when he speaks, you listen Mm -hmm. and what he says matters, whether it's good English or understandable completely, whether it's sometimes hypocritical, it feels like, like he's waffling going back and forth, but it feels like it matters. And when he kills someone every single time, it feels like it matters. It does not feel like a video game where he's just racking up the kill streak. You know what I mean? And he's untouchable. Um, he feels like someone you have to be afraid of. And so I think it gives the whole movie this incredible sense of tension that is built throughout it. And I, and I love it. I love that feeling when I get that in a film of like that quote unquote edge of your seat feeling. You literally are worried because you know that if something's going to happen to this person, it's not going to be fun. It's not going to be quick. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. And you're afraid of what legitimately might take place well i would say that yes to everything except quick i think there is a level of mercy that exists with his character when it's possible so let's let's take the exception you have a point with the air gun thing too that is pretty well let's let's take the exception to the rule which is the very first sequence where he gets up from his you know from his seat and he strangles the guy Mm -hmm. he has to kill him Let's assume that the rule is he has to kill the people that he comes in contact with for the most part. Like he doesn't leave unless the coin flips the right way. He asks someone at one point, Phil, he says, are you going to kill me? And he says, well, I don't know. Have you seen me? And it's like, oh, like that's that Grim Reaper. Yeah. You're talking about. Absolutely. So with the exception of that scene, every every other death has been quick. And there have been really interesting moments of not mercy. But thoughtfulness, and I say that very, very loosely when it comes to his character and the way he he comes across, because there is a scene where he comes in, it's a hotel scene where those three Mexicans are hanging out, he blows them away, 
He goes to the bathroom and he sees the guy in the mirror. He turns around and the guy's like, please, I don't, I can't remember what he says. He says it in, in Spanish, but he covers the shower and then shoots him. And you could take that a number of different ways. I took it as this guy didn't know what was coming. So when he was blasted with that, his death was quick and painless. Or maybe he's bleeding out. I don't know. I'm going to assume that it was quick and painless. But then we see two other scenes that we make, make connections with. One is with the truck driver and the, and the birds or the chickens. And the last thing we hear him say is, can you take those chickens? How long will it take you to get those chickens off the truck? We assume he killed them, but we don't see it. Same thing with Carla Jean Moss. We see him have a conversation with her. The next scene, the next moment is him walking out of the house, looking at his boots, assuming that he's looking for blood. So we make these assumptions, but we don't see them. And I feel like the Coens are showing us that killing is not his motive, that killing is part of his end goal. Not just that people are getting in his way, but that he has to fulfill promises, that he has to abide by a set of rules. So the well, scene in- says that at one point he tells uh, Brolin's uh, Moss, I think he does tell him that he says like, he has a code. It's whacked, but he has one that he's following. Right. And so, again, I don't think that the sociopathicness is off the table by any means, but he still lives in a world where he has boundaries. And those boundaries are are made known when he meets that shop owner and he has this incredibly awkward conversation. I was I was feeling awkward with the shop owner who wants to shut the store down midday. And he's like, what time do you go to bed? And I'm like, this is getting weird. This is getting really weird. And he goes, call it, call it, call it. And he finally calls it in its heads and he goes, it's your lucky quarter. And he walks away. And I believe I want to say that he actually pays for the for the food, the, the peanuts or whatever that he eats. Because if you look at the uh, the cash register, it says change tendered twenty one cents, and I'm assuming he gave him a dollar. I, I think so. That scene is was close to being my connecting point, just simply because of its brilliance. Like mm-hmm. not necessarily emotional connection, but it is amazing the way the tension is in that scene. The, first of all, the whole film. It's scored by Carter Burwell, who is their long-term um, scorer. Composer. Why can't I? <laughs> Composer. <laughs> that that word. Um, but <laughs> there's very little use of a score in this movie. It's a minimalistic mm-hmm. film where the sound editing shines, and it drives a lot of that tension. There's a moment where he puts the candy wrapper on the counter, and it like slowly is uncrinkling, and it's like. I feel like I'm about to explode at that moment. I'm so scared. But seriously, there's so much going on in there. Like, he, his lines in that, he talks about that, he says, you know what the date on the coin is? 1958. And that's where we learn about, you know, his idea of phasing. And he says, it's been traveling 22 years to get here. And now it's here. And it's either head or tails. Like, this is where it is. And, you know, and he's like, I'm not going to call it. And he's like, you need to call it. I can't call it for you. It wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't even be right. And it is. It's phenomenal because he has this poetic way of talking about fate and the way that it plays a role in human lives that I think the everyday person 
us as the shop owner, we don't think about fate like that. We don't think about every little piece of decision-making that we do as having these eventual choose-your-own-adventure-style consequences, right? And so it's a little deceptive, but it because the coin doesn't really ultimately kill the man, Chigurh is making that choice himself, even if it's based on this code. But it is a fascinating concept to think about, like all of the little pieces that bring you to this point. Um, I actually thought about it today when some awful news came across, like a notification on my phone. Um, there's a running back for the Texas Longhorns. I don't know. I'm sure you probably saw this, but uh, his name is Cedric Benson, one of the greatest running backs of all time in yeah. college. And he was killed late last night. Um, he was on a motorcycle with a young lady and they were on a really dangerous road from what I read. It was a, a road with a lot of turns and ups and downs that a lot of people rode for fun. He was on his motorcycle, um, but a van came out and hit them and they both died. Earlier that evening, he posted on his Instagram a picture of his BMW motorcycle and it's just with a caption that said, my Saturday evening. I thought about this movie. I thought about like, like that bike, you know, came to you and now you have it and it's in this moment and like here you are at this time and like is this where you were supposed to be kind of thing and and it's crazy. Like and I think the Coens are using that idea to get our brains just doing all kinds of fun mental gymnastics as we watch this kind of all you know, it's like a chase movie of, you know, a killer going after some money ultimately yeah but i think it's more than that and i think they knew that going in that it's it uses a chase movie with a killer going after the money as a base to explore what that what that story is looking like from multiple perspectives and we have three main characters doing this we have as we've mentioned sugar We've got Llewellyn Moss, and we've got Tommy Lee Jones, Tom Bell. And I think Tommy Lee Jones is just a perpetual cowboy. I think that <laughs> he's amazing. These are the these are the roles that he's made for. And I, I love the crotchety old man. I wanted to watch all of his movies after this. I was like, I need to go on a Tommy Lee Jones marathon. I, he's just great. And I think a lot of times we miss how great he is because the movies that he's been in are, are all really I mean, I, I love him in Men in Black. I think it's fantastic. But He's playing a role that I think really – he's playing his fugitive role, but it's a toned-down fugitive role, and it's a more thoughtful fugitive role because he's a, he's a lawman, and he comes from a history of lawmen. And he's lived with this – by making a choice, he's lived with this notion of things are supposed to be a certain way. This is the law. This is what it's supposed to be. And you can see throughout – the movie as we get more of him on screen he gets kind of jaded by that because the world around him seems to be crumbling and it seems to be playing by a different set of rules there's this really great moment where they're at the crime scene where the drugs are supposed to be and he discovers hey they're gone i mean we know that we're the omniscient kind of audience they were there once now they're not and his deputy says you think that there was some money attached to it? I mean, or there couldn't, you know, maybe there wasn't any money. Maybe it was just a drug thing. He goes, yeah, that could be right. He goes, but probably not, right? And he goes, probably not. So we're, we're looking at these situations where he is playing by a set of rules too. 
that being a small kind of indicator that, look, if there were drugs here, there's probably money associated with it. That more than likely, this wasn't just a drug deal where you're trading drugs for something else other than cash. So he's using his instincts and his history as a lawman to say, okay, let's get from A to B to C. And over the course of the film, he finds that things are not what they seem because the rules are not being followed. More specifically, his rules are not being followed. And in some ways, I feel like, Aaron, we're sitting in his boots. We are, yeah, you know what? You're right. This isn't supposed to happen. He's not supposed to kill all these people. And, you know, this is supposed to happen and that's supposed to take place. And at the end of the movie, all is right with the world. And the guy that steals the money is supposed to be able to keep it. And the guy that's actually going after him to return the money, which is kind of more morally, ethically right, it, it ends up getting you know, hit in a, in a car accident and wobbling away. But all this is taking place through the lens. Um, at least that perspective of it is taking place through the lens of, of Tom Bell. And I think he represents us as that audience that looks at this world that we're living in and it's being challenged. It's being challenged in a way that says, nope, that's not right. It doesn't have to look like that. It can look much worse or it can look much better. But just know that you are not the reason for that necessarily. So, yeah, I agree. And I would say that starts from the opening narration. So much so. And I, and I love, love, love the opening scenes, the bookend scenes, essentially, of narration here and by Sheriff Tom Bell, where he's talking about this murder that happens and how the guy is just completely unapologetic and just essentially he's like saying, I am ready to die and go to hell like I want to. So he's essentially saying the world is changing. The world to me is now I'm aware that there are evils out there that I cannot change, that there are, there are no explanations for the evil that these people want to put out into the world. Um, and he talks about, he says, I always knew you had to be willing to die to even do this job, not to be glorious. You could say it's my job to fight it, but I don't know what it is anymore. More than that, I don't want to know. A man would have to put his soul at hazard. He would have to say, okay, I'll be part of this world. And it's crazy because like he's wrestling with that. And can I even effectively do my job anymore in this world? Do I understand it enough? to be able to be effective and what does it even mean is it even worth it you know he's wrestling with all those questions and i love how that ultimately plays out um through him i think tommy lee jones is perfect i love his a little bit of comedic spacing we get from garrett dillahunt's character in wendell the deputy it is so well done because in 95 percent of movies his role would be more amplified and more ridiculous to like really hammer home that com comedy and like try and intentionally break up our tension feeling. Um, I actually learned that Gil Gary Dillahunt um, auditioned for Llewellyn Moss like five times and he just kept getting called back and called back. And then they ultimately decided they wanted to go with Brolin. They wanted somebody just slightly more recognizable 
And so they offered him this role, and he said he was thrilled to throw himself into it because he wanted to be able to just give the audience that very, very tiny break. And there's a couple great lines. You know, he brings out that conversation about, you know, should we start circulating to the news when they walk in and find uh, Moss missing? And he gives Tommy Lee Jones the line where he gets to say, what are we circulating? Looking for a man who has recently drunk milk, which is probably one of my favorite lines of the movie. I think it's hilarious. And then that other moment where he's being told that story by Tommy Lee Jones um, about the graves being dug in the friendly couple's backyard and Wendell's like right on the verge of chuckling and Belle is like, well, that's all right. I laugh myself sometimes. Ain't a whole lot else you can do. And that is the point right there. Like ain't a whole lot else you can do at some point. It is what it is. I can't stop it all. I have to just deal with it. I have to engage or not engage and take what comes. So there's an interesting thing about these three characters because I think they all have that kind of compulsion to just accept the fate that they are given. And they come by it different ways. I think you could make the attachment of that idea to to Tom for sure. Being a seasoned lawman, he is just accepting the fact that the world's changing and maybe he's not changing with it. Maybe he's too slow. Maybe he just doesn't know how to. And that eventually leads to his retirement. For Sugar, he accepts the fact that his destiny is this and he can't necessarily leave that destiny. He just has to keep going. When that started, we don't really know necessarily, but he believes in fate for sure. That conversation about the quarter is is kind of a hint at that, but he knows that whatever path he's down, he's on, it will continue to move forward. He can't change that path. And the same thing probably applies for Llewellyn Moss, who, as we mentioned before, seems to have the most choice. But even then, his choices are led by a compulsion that would, I don't know that he accepts death, but he accepts the fact that that's a real possibility. The fact is most of us are probably not living a life that is dangerous or that has death on its mind, that we're not all trying to be stunt drivers, trying to do something very exciting because we want to experience death. We want to, you know, like, <laughs> like Dom's dad, <laughs> we didn't, we knew that we were just gonna, gonna die. And so we just continued to just push ourselves. I think all of these guys, they didn't. I don't think death was the end goal for all of them, but I think they understood the fact that they were on a path that they couldn't change. And they each made choices to either fulfill that path, get to it quickly, or to allow that path to benefit someone else. I think that more specifically is for Llewellyn Moss and his relationship with Carla Jean, which I think is such a, just a great tender relationship. I absolutely love the scene when he comes home after bringing, and he's so nonchalant. She's like, where you been? He's like, out. So what you got there? Sack full of money. And, you know, she's thinking, mm-hmm, whatever. But he's like being completely honest with her. I mean, it's, it's so absurd that he ends up, you know, just walking by and saying that. And he goes to the kitchen, grabs a beer, sits down next to her, and she keeps talking. And he jokingly says, you keep talking like that, I'm going to have to screw you. And then she just keeps talking and goes, well, that'll do it. And then the scene kind of ends. I think those scenes really speak to 
his humanity. And I think that's what the Coen brothers wanted us to feel as an audience. They want us to connect with someone. I don't think they intentionally ever wanted us to connect with Tom. We didn't see him enough. We got more of him. So it's interesting that the movie ends with him talking about what he talks about. And it doesn't end with Llewellyn or even with Carla Jean. But that kind of brings me to what I thought was a really interesting thing. And that's the question of what this film actually says about the fairness of life. Because midway through the third act, we find out that Llewellyn Moss is dead. No, he's not. At least that's what I thought. No, he's not. No, he's faking it. No, that was a, that's a fake body. There's a big setup. No, no, he's dead. <laughs> and you have to deal with that. You as in an audience, you as in Carla Jean. And it got me asking the question, what does that mean for us as an audience? How do we, how do we respond to that? I mean, should there be justice for everything? Not just in movies, but, but in life. Should, should life be fair? And if it's not, what is our response to that? Well, as I tell my teenage daughter frequently these days, life's not fair. So you're going to do more chores than your brother is sometimes, and he's going to do more chores than you are sometimes. And I get to decide because I'm the one with the coin, so to speak. I even actually made them choose a movie via coin flip the night after we watched No Country for Old Men. We were trying to pick one, and I thought this would be fun. So I uh, made them call it, Patrick, and Inception won, which was great, fun, by the way. So when it comes to fairness, I think that life is not fair. I think fairness and justice from a faith perspective, will never be achieved until, um, in my opinion, our creator is going to renew the earth. And until then, it's not achievable. I think what we see in movies, though, and what we see in real life is people who are always going to strive for fairness, strive for justice. Bell is probably the one that does that the most. Ellis, he actually doesn't necessarily come out and give himself away as anything of a you know fake sort, in my opinion. But he is more concerned about doing a job than he is about saving lives, I think. He just wants the money to close the deal, to get to Shigur, hopefully. Uh, he uses the fact that Moss will hopefully be saved and his wife will be saved, I think, to try and convince him. But I don't feel like he necessarily cares as much about that but i think that this movie is showing us it's the justice is not always going to come first of all sometimes the bad guy's going to get away sometimes the good guy's going to get killed sometimes you're going to make the right choice and you're still going to end up being on the wrong end of the grim reaper for no reason at all carla jean is a perfect example of this she's done nothing absolutely nothing wrong you know and i'll talk more about her later but there are other people uh, the chicken coop driver right where's the fairness in the fact that he is murdered because sugar wants his truck you know that happens to a couple people um i don't think that there is an element of that in our world and i think that the cohen's are just reflecting that and I think that they're very 
intentionally showing it in a way that says we shouldn't necessarily ever expect to get there. And that is different than a lot of Hollywood movies. Yeah, and I think it, at first glance, you could look at a movie like this and say it's very much nihilistic, which is a true statement. Oh, and yeah. People hate it because it's nihilistic, yeah, for sure. And But at the same time, it challenges our morality because it, it challenges what we think is fair or unfair, at least from, I mean, in its own form. What do we think is fair? Well, we think it's fair that Llewellyn Moss should get to keep $2 million that he stole and have his wife live and then live happily ever after because that's what we've been taught through all these narrative narratives all these movies throughout the years good guy quote unquote gray at best gets the gets the money gets the girl gets the bad guy and no country for old men challenges that it says no it doesn't say that Llewellyn Moss was wrong it just says that no you don't get that. In fact, there's this really great moment where Sugar says he wanted everything and he, he thought he could get it. But no, he can't. He can get one thing or the other, but he can't have both. And whether that's up to a person or fate or an idea, whatever, the fact is, I think the movie is saying you can't control and get everything you want. You're going to have to make a sacrifice. Something's going to have to give in order for you to get something else. And that sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but I think this movie is trying to challenge us as an audience to say, really take that to heart because we want the easy money. We want the easy way out. We want the the best of everything. Ain't that we, no easy way out. There ain't no shortcut home, man. There ain't no. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta fight you gotta fight the Russian at some point. And I, I think it does a, a really fantastic job at not really slamming it on us, but just saying that this is reality. And what do you do? You don't challenge it, you adjust and you move forward. Um we're going through a, a season right now at our local church body where where we're dealing with that. We're dealing with a lot of change, a lot of hurt people. And we're asking ourselves, well, what's next? How do we get through this? Which is a very fair question to ask. And we don't know what the answer is. We are exploring some of the answers, but we at least think that recognizing that people are hurt and that's not okay, but we have to accept that that's a reality right now. And by accepting that that's a reality, we can move through that and be able to understand that while it doesn't feel fair, it is the truth so how do we react to that and no country for old men i think invites us into that to say what do you do when justice isn't actually served <laughs> when you have to live with that yeah and i love that ellis which is harrelson's da agent character he actually is talking to ed tom and giving him advice and he says something very similar to them to him about this he says what you got ain't nothing new this country is hard on people you can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. And I love that. I feel like you know that's a preaching moment right there. And that's what he's saying is what you're talking about. He's saying it is it is going to keep turning. The world is going to keep turning. And Ed, Ed Tom Bell feels like, hey, this is getting worse. And I think this is very common today in our sensationalistic society and especially with the way that the news media works. And we're able to know about everything and see violent crime and 
you know, mass murder on a scale that we've never been, we've never had our eyeballs on it like that before. Even though things, people have been killed and, and things have been happening for all of eternity, right? It's going to keep turning. And for us to think that it's somehow different now because of us, because this is our time or uh, this is me, then it is vanity. And it is going to keep going and keep happening over and over and over. Um, and all you can do is be prepared for it. And I think make choices accordingly and carefully. Um, and like you said, not expect to have it go all your way easily. Right. right. Coincidentally, you can get a similar theme from a scene from the Goonies where <laughs> Mikey says, this is our time. This is our time down here. That all goes away the moment we go up Troy's bucket. Just know that there's philosophy there. <laughs> it's all about Josh Brolin. It's all about Josh Brolin. Every movie with Josh Brolin has phenomenal philosophy. I, I mean, he's got with... people believing that, that half the world should be snapped out of existence. Exactly. People are on Thanos' side. <laughs> Josh Brolin has a way of doing that to He you. does that. He does. I hope he's listening right now so he can call us and be like, let me explain why I take on these roles. <laughs> That may explain Deadpool 2 in some way. I don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No, maybe not. Um, well, in bringing up Tom Bell, I want to talk a bit about the ending because I think that that is probably the thing that could divide audiences quite a bit. And um, it's bleak. It's quiet. It's abrupt. And a lot of viewers are turned off by how uh, how the movie ends. So I'm going to... So just to begin the conversation about this, I'm going to ask you, Aaron, why are people people so turned off by this ending? Well, I don't know. I think it's people need happy. And when we see Moss dead, we are left with the impression that his wife has been killed senselessly, essentially. Sugar has been seemingly... Maybe he's going to get his due, and then it gets turned around on us to, nope, he just gets to walk away. And we end with Ed Tom Bell. We think, because we're conditioned to think, that there's going to be some philosophical takeaway that makes it all better <laughs> and gives us hope, right? Movies, ultimately in the end, typically want to leave us with some sort of hope. But this dream that he has can or two of them, I guess, can largely be seen as devoid of hope. It can be seen as he's been spending like his entire life trying to find an understanding of why humans are the way they are. Why is human life the way it is? Like what why why is this why is this cycle the way it works? Why is there this evil? And I think that for him, he wants to believe that there's always going to be this light in the darkness. And it feels like that's what he's going to when his dad has this fire that he's creating. Even though everything around him, he says, you know, is the coldness of death and darkness, etc. And then he wakes up. And it's like a poof back to me. It's telling us he's right back into reality. That there is no magical place where there's always going to be this fire in the darkness that sometimes it's going to just be darkness and 
I think it feels like his hope is being snuffed out, and that's what people read it as. And so it's a gut punch. It really is a gut punch. Um, and I, I don't necessarily know that I believe it, that that is the takeaway. I think it's m- intentionally ambiguous, much like the end of Inception, since I just recently rewatched that. It, it wants you to think about it. It wants you to interpret it for yourself. But it doesn't feel optimistic at all. It feels like he's just giving in, giving up, mentally speaking, and accepting that the world is how it is and I can't change it after all. Well, I think that's a true statement. And in a life like that, I, I would say that that is very pessimistic. Um, one interpretation that, that I read came from James Blake Ewing from Movie Mezzanine, an article he wrote a couple of years ago. And he says, Ed tells his wife about a dream he's had, and he talks about the dream of his father riding on a horse with a horn carrying a flame. His father says not a word as he passes, but Ed knows that his father has ridden on ahead, brave the dark and cold, to prepare a fire for Ed. And Ewing says, if that's not the most eternally hopeful ending a film film could have, I don't know what is. Again, we're talking about interpretation here. And he says... He refers back to Anton. Anton only wins in the most superficial sense. And this is where I think his argument works because he's making the comparison to the only two living characters of these three. He may escape the grasp of man's law, but Ed's dream imagines something greater beyond this mortal coil. After all, Anton may kill others, but what has he gained? He is none the wealthier or wiser by the end, and none of the good people have come around to his way of thinking. But some men, men like Ed, have a hope far greater than anything Anton can begin to imagine. There may be no country for old men, but perhaps there is a kingdom for them. And so there's a there's this really great sense of pulling that and saying, you know what, my dream, maybe the reaction is not, oh man, it was just a dream, but maybe it was a glimpse into what happens once this life is over. That there is a... I don't want to, I don't, I don't think they're talking about eternal life here. I don't think it's, I mean, you could read into that, but it gave me the vision of thinking about the last book in the Narnia series where this old country that is worn and weathered and beaten down and full of blood and full of death, they're now moving into a new country. And that new country starts at a distance with a light, with a fire, and that there is, there's life there. And that it's a blank slate. Now, you have to go through the darkness to get there. But I think that what we have is a man who's in his retirement, who's choosing not to, he's choosing to let the world kind of grab him and move him along. But I don't think that is necessarily a bad thing. I think when I think retirement, I think that's an exhale of of relief. I think that's a sense of someone being able to breathe out, sitting down and finally resting. And to have a dream like that, to me, I think is incredibly affirming because it tells me that he may not have something to look forward to while he's alive, but maybe there's something out there once he passes on that he can give up the ghost and maybe he will see his dad again. And so I, I still see there's some pessimism in this, especially with the abrupt ending, the, the ending as abrupt as what it is because of the fact that we want justice we want to see what happens. Hopefully something justice specific happens to Sugar, but that's not what the Coens want to show us. And that's not probably what the book does either. The story is challenging us to say, 
What is it that you are looking forward to? What is it that you see as your fire? If this is not your country, if this is not the country you want to live in or that you are the the old man living in this country, what is your new kingdom in a sense? What is your new place that you're hoping for? And I think that that dream kind of points the way for him. And again, as I said earlier, if he's a representation of us as an audience, maybe that's it for us too. That's good. I like that. Yeah. Well, let's move into our connecting points. Um, this was tough for me. I had several that made the cut. And um, even even now, I'm, I'm whittling it down to two. So I'm going to let you go first. And uh, and then I'll, I'll give mine. All right. Well, I am going to say that mine is uh, was pretty easy for me after the coin scene. Like I said, the cinematically speaking, I feel like that is just such an incredible moment of tension. But there's another one. And it's more emotionally connecting for me. And that is when Carla Jean Moss enters her mother's house. She finds Anton Sugar sitting there in a chair in her mom's room. Now, I think this scene is brilliant because we never know exactly what happened. And you mentioned this earlier. He walks out. He looks at his boots. Clearly, we think he's checking for blood. Um, we can assume that she refused to call it. And we can see how adamant he is that she does. And I think it tells us an awful lot about them. And I'm actually going to read through their dialogue because I didn't pull the audio. Um, she says to him when he walks, when she walks in, she says, I knew this wasn't done with, I ain't got the money, but what little I had is long gone. And this bills a plenty to pay yet. I buried my mother today and I ain't paid for that neither. I think that tells us that she ended up getting some of the money and using some of the money. So she's culpable in a sense. He says, I wouldn't worry about that, <laughs> which is a really painfully chilling response. And she says, I need to sit down. <laughs> you got no cause to hurt me. And, and right away, like it is a fascinating moment to me because she is this, all we've seen from her is this meek character in the background, right? Who doesn't really seem to have a ton of agency. She's just his wife. And here she is facing off with a killer head to head. And she's like, no, I want to sit down and talk this out <laughs> as if she's going to be able to achieve that. And he says to her about, no, you've got no cause to hurt me. He says, no, but I gave my word. And she, he says, you gave your word. And she says, to your husband. That don't make no sense. You gave your word to my husband to kill me? And he says, your husband had the opportunity to save you. Instead, he used you to try and save himself. And she challenges that. She says, not like that. Not like you say. You don't have to do this. And it's a, a moment where I think we also see something very unique here in that Shigur almost chuckles. Like he like is the slightest little grin on his face. And he, he's like, people always say the same thing. And she's, what do they say? He says, they say, you don't have to do this. And she's like, you don't. And he goes, okay. And so he pulls out that cord and he tosses it into the air and he catches it and he puts it on his thigh, right? And I mean, this is the most tense thing ever, dude, because of, because of the scene with the gas station. He says, this is the best I can do. Call it. It's incredible, man. He is giving her a chance. Like, he literally is kind of almost going back on his own principle. His own refusal not to. That he's going to kill her no matter what. But now he's like, you know what? Sigh. Okay, I'm going to just, you, you're, you're winning the chance. And she says, I know you was crazy when I saw you sitting there. I know exactly what I was in store for me. Call it, he says. She says, no, I ain't going to call it. He says, call it. She says, the coin don't have no say. It's just you. 
And he says, I got here the same way the coin did. It is an incredible, incredible moment to me. He's giving her a 50-50 chance on whether she lives or dies. He is taking it from zero to, or from 100% chance she's dead to a 50% chance she's dead, right? That is what is happening, if you look at this from a mathematical standpoint. She is refusing to take the 50% odds and saying, I want zero or nothing, essentially. It is incredible and ballsy and maybe stupid. I don't know. It's like that. It's like people that say, like, I'm going to go out fighting, right? It's like That's what she's saying. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out swinging. I feel like that last line, though, is so powerful. I got here the same way the coin did. He has frequently waffled back and forth. Sometimes he suggests that the coins is random chance, and sometimes he says it's fate. I don't know that he knows. Um, and when she says that he needs to take responsibility for his killing, all he responds with is, I got here the same way the coin did. And in, I think maybe it symbolizes the way that we all waffle back and forth between fate and randomness whenever it suits us, right? We want it to be whatever makes us feel good about the situation. And it reminds me of the, the top spinning at the end of Inception. Again, it gives me something interesting to consider from multiple angles and something to take on myself. Like, how is my personal viewing of this scene, what does it tell me about me, more so than what does it tell me about Sugar or Carly G. Moss? And then on top of that, I think it's just emotionally the most tragic scene in the movie. It's, it's awful because this wife has learned that her husband had a chance to save her and that he wouldn't do so. He wouldn't sacrifice himself. And... I don't know whether to hate Llewellyn for that or to still empathize with both of them because they're both murdered. But I know that I hate the end for Carla uh, because I think that her real only crime was loving and trusting him while he was making terrible choices. Absolutely. And you've kind of solidified my connecting point, And that's the car accident that happens right after that, because what we get as a what I think is a starting point with Carla Jean challenging Sugar in a way that is new to him the fact that she won't do the coin toss and he has to ambiguously we don't know but we make the assumption that he does in fact kill her which goes against at least in part his moral code because he doesn't have the coin flip to to help him in that regard um then he leaves and i feel like he's a, he's a little thwarted himself where he doesn't really know how to react to that. And he gets T-boned by a guy going, you know, running a red light. At first, again, my hope was that, oh, that was, that was Llewellyn. You know, he was like coming back, you know, and it was not. It was some random car uh, that, that hit him. And so he's now the victim in this regard. And we're hoping that he's dead, but he's not because, you know, he's a, a sociopath. But then you see these two boys come up to him on bikes and they're like, mister, are you okay? Your bone is sticking. I mean, just so obvious your bone is sticking out. And he says, he, he, the first thing he does, he doesn't say, I need, I need your shirt. He said, here, I'll buy your shirt from you. And what's interesting is that first guy says, hell man, I'll give you my shirt. And he pulls it off and he gives it to him. But sugar never, he never just takes it. He gives him the money and he says, you never saw me. I think that rattled him 
I think that that moment made him realize that, you know what, there are good people in the world, people that, that could help him because they don't know about his past, that he's actually seen beyond just that grim reaper, that death is coming for you guy, that he was a victim in this case. And in a small way, I, I feel a little sympathy for him because he'll never know that authentically without being in a, in a sense, uh, in an accident or in a, in a moment like that where he's the victim. And the only way that people know him is through that one moment. I think that it rattled his philosophy. I think it rattled his morality and what he was designed to do. And I think that he wasn't just getting out of there because he had a mission. I think he was getting out of there because he was uncomfortable and because he, and you could read into probably the obvious that if he had gotten picked up by the ambulance, he would have been identified and probably arrested. But I'm going to take this one step further and say, I think he would have gotten the care that he needed and he would have been shown even more that the world is not so much an ugly place as he might expect that he's living in. So seeing that take place soon after the scene that you mentioned, I think creates an avenue of understanding that often what we think should be fair isn't and often what we think isn't fair actually might be and uh, and for a character like like sugar i think he represents the most ambiguous in all of us like you mentioned of what is you know is this fate or is this choice and i i think that tension lives pretty well in those two scenes agreed i think it's a great great moment to sort of end the film on right before the speech of course and i love the juxtaposition of that scene and how earlier we have after being shot by him multiple times llewellyn moss dealing with the same scenario and having to get clothes from random boys and it's a much different scene it plays out very differently mm -hmm. they want to take advantage of him yeah they show him a very different side of the world and they're like, well, no, we want more money or we want we want this and we want that. And where these boys are like, no, you keep the money. We don't even care about that or the shirt. Um, and so when you juxtapose that, it's fascinating on how those two characters end up. Mm -hmm. You know, just equal opposites towards. Yeah, it's great. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin Film. Make sure you join us for the upcoming week where we bring you another FF Plus. And then we finish out Director Battle Month next week covering uh, seven. Or as I like to call it. Seven, number seven, and then, and then, and then, you know, <laughs> numbers inside words just confuse me, but that's what we're in for. So anyway, Aaron, thanks for another great conversation and we will talk soon. Hey everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.